Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I guess I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. 231, look. Talk to me, look. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. This is part two of the Cape Cod serial killer. Now, if you haven't listened to part one and you want anything we're talking about to make sense, it might be a good idea to go back and listen to episode 149 before listening to this one. Patricia Walsh and Mary Ann Wasaki went to Cape Cod for a cheeky weekend away on January 24, 1969, and were never seen alive again. After following several leads, police started digging for Pat and Mary Ann's remains near the remote, creepy-as-fuck cemetery in Truro. They were shocked to find the dismembered body of a young woman who was neither Pat nor Mary Ann. After more digging near Tony Costa's marijuana garden... They uncovered the dissected and disassembled bodies of three more missing young women. All the murdered young women were last seen with 24-year-old carpenter, ladies' man and massive drug pig, Tony Costa. Oh, we should add a bit of a trigger warning here. This episode does contain very graphic descriptions of dismemberment. Woo! Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Just like a lot of multi-host podcasts, we're in social isolation and so we have to record remotely. Uh, Apologies if we sound a bit different. Yeah, it's a little harder to bounce off each other without being in the same room. You kind of need the sights, sounds and smells of your co-host. Oh, I can assure you that I don't miss the smells. Um, I do miss recording together though. Yeah, me too. It's fun. It is fun. Where's Barney? You're just a guy on a Skype screen now. 
I'm just a handsome man on a screen on your computer. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to loads of other episodes, including our shit sandwich Hold the Bread first season (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes, which you get earlier as well. That's true. You also get exclusive patron-only monthly episodes where we take a more casual approach and really let our freak flags fly. Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. And of course, you're automatically entered into the draw for our monthly giveaways. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Oh, Barney, you don't have to get murdery if you stay murdery. In part one, we discuss the disappearance of 23-year-old elementary school teacher Pat Walsh and her friend, college student Marianne Wysocki. We talked about the frustration that their loved ones felt when the police initially theorised they'd just gone off travelling on some kind of adventure and would come back when they felt like it like a lot of young people were doing in 1969. The police also assumed 18-year-old Sydney Monson, who had vanished from the area on May 25, 1968, had done the same thing. Another local girl, 17-year-old Susan Perry, had also gone missing. She'd disappeared from the area in early September 1968. Her parents never actually reported her missing, assuming that she'd just wandered off to live in another town without telling anyone. Oh, those kooky kids, just wandering off, never using their bank accounts again. What a lark. I know, right? All the missing women had last been seen in the company of kinky taxidermy enthusiast Tony Costa. When asked about Susan's whereabouts, Tony had told her friends she'd gone to Mexico. Now, we know that Tony Costa had form, because back in November 1961, 16-year-old Tony tried to kidnap his 14-year-old neighbour, but luckily he was caught while dragging her down the stairs of her apartment building. Tony was convicted of burglary and assault. He only received a one-year suspended sentence, because he was a good boy who was good at maths. Thanks, justice system. Tony liked to eat the green bananas. If there was grass on the green, he figured it was open for play. He married a 14-year-old girl named Avis that he'd started dating when she was 13. Tony was the king of the kids and would invite girls to Truro to see secret weed patch. Hey, baby! (laughs) At the end of part one, while searching the woods in Truro near the creepy as fuck cemetery, police had discovered the body of a white female cut into eight pieces buried in a shallow grave. It didn't take long for the authorities to realise that the young woman wasn't Pat Walsh or Marianne Wysocki. This woman was only five foot, while Pat and Marianne were both several inches taller. Pathologist Dr Katsis performed the autopsy. He told the TV show Born to Kill, The body had suffered a staggering violence, as if torn to pieces by a frenzied animal. The chest had been split open and emptied of its contents, including the heart. The breasts were not found, nor were the liver and upper abdominal organs. The labia and vulva had been extracted. The uterus, ovaries and intestines were missing. He was also gobsmacked to find the woman's heart jammed into the space that had been created by the removal of all her interior genitalia. 
Sounds like the person who murdered her might have had mad taxidermy skills and a love of Hieronymus Bosch. And a horrifyingly violent streak. There were deep gashes to her arms, legs and torso. Her cause of death was ruled to be multiple stab wounds to the abdomen. Dr Katzis couldn't quite nail the TOD, but believed the woman had been dead for between six months and two years. Her hands were clenched into fists and she was wearing a 14 karat gold wedding ring with five diamond chips and the initials LB engraved on it. Due to the distinct wedding band, which had belonged to her mother, the body was eventually identified as being 17-year-old Susan Perry. It took a while though, as there was no missing persons report lodged after Susan disappeared. I wonder if I killed her is what Tony meant when he told Susan's friends that she had gone to Mexico. Two days after Susan Perry's body was found, police discovered Pat Walsh's light blue VW in a lot in Burlington, Vermont. The parking space had been rented by Tony Costa. It had not been painted an exotic colour as Tony had earlier inquired about. No persimmon for Tony. No. Even though evidence was mounting against him, narcissistic Tony came back to town to proclaim his innocence. He shot up speed to give him energy before talking to the police, which might go some way to explaining his erratic stories, all of which are outlined in the book In His Garden by Leo Damore. Yeah, he told police several different inconsistent and conflicting stories about Pat and Marianne. He also denied any knowledge of the, at this point, unidentified body found near Truro Cemetery. And he told them some outlandish porky pies about how he came to be in possession of Pat's light blue VW. Speeding off his tits, wriggling around in his seat, the police thought he was on the verge of confessing, but he didn't. In one version, Tony told police Marianne and Pat had gone to Montreal as one of them needed an abortion, and the girls had just given him the car. Then he told them that both girls needed abortions and claimed to have bought the VW for $900 to help them raise the money. In this iteration, he said he had to pick up the VW from Burlington, Vermont, and the girls were also looking to buy fake IDs. Next, he claimed Pat was going to use the car for one more week, after which she would leave it out of town in the Truro woods for him. Investigators wondered why she would apparently drive all the way out to Truro to leave the car for him and how the young women would have gone on from there. Also, buying a 1968 VW for $900 was very, very cheap, even in 1969. Investigators asked Tony why the girls didn't just sell it through a dealer for more money. Instead of answering this question, Tony just changed his story again. By this point, the police firmly believed he was involved in Pat and Marianne's disappearance. Tony now claimed he'd known Pat and Marianne for several months. He told the police the girls are all mixed up in drugs. They're heavy users of heroin and hashish. I sold them $700 of heroin last August. Then later, Tony said that he hadn't met the girls until the day they checked into the guest house in Provincetown. His far-fetched, tangled web of horseshit was all over the place. How can you get a tangled web of horseshit? Well, you obviously haven't seen my grandma's ranch, have you, Barney? No, and I don't want to. 
Anyway, he produced a handwritten bill of sale for the car, apparently signed by Pat. His story was that he had written it and Pat had signed it. When detectives pointed out that the writing on the bill of sale and Pat's signature were the same handwriting, Tony spun it around and said Pat wrote it herself and then signed it. The handwritten bill of sale was sent to the FBI, along with examples of Pat and Tony's handwriting. The FBI found that Tony had written it himself and also forged Pat's signature. That was a lot to go through just to find out the obvious truth. It really was. Because the police weren't teenage girls and didn't just buy everything he said, Tony changed his tune again. He said he'd been lying to protect Pat and Mary Ann and he'd actually sold them $750 of hashish last August, but they didn't cough up the cash. So when they came back to town, he took Pat's car and gave them $300. Which doesn't add up either. I thought he was good at math. I know. Um, Maybe he's only good at math when he's not speeding off his tits. Yeah. Yeah, remember, not a performance-enhancing drug for Tony. When asked how Pat's sweater and Marianne's hairdryer came to be in his room at the guest house, Tony said that they were there when he rented it, which wasn't possible because he rented the room well before the girls visited the area. We'll be back with more of the Cape Cod serial killer after this. Hey, Barney Two Cakes, what time is it? It's true crime nerd time. Woo! True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have yet another one here from our staff writer, Tracy Stewart. She's an all-star. She really is. Not in a terrible Shrek song way. <laughs> but <laughs> In the best possible way. If you like that song, yeah, not in a smash in mouth way. way. But if you hate it like Barney clearly does, then we don't mean in that way. My kids used to sing it all the time. It used to drive me crazy. Ah, did you prefer it when they sing Kesha at you? Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Yeah, I like that one. Oh, okay, cool. I thought you would have been sick of that too because it was in that um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. That's right. Anyway, Tracy writes, Hello, my dear Barney and Tara. Here's a true crime nerd time for you. And again, I'm sorry I'm not recording this, but I hate the sound of my own voice. I'd much rather hear Barney's. Yeah, Barney feels the same way. All right, then you'll get the best Barney voice possible. <laughs> hey, baby. Hey, baby, it's the best Barney voice possible. <laughs> she writes, remember the book and movie The Perfect Storm? I do. <laughs> I'm obsessed with big waves, so I do. Oh, yeah, big waves, oh. cool. Can't get enough. Everybody dies in the end. Sorry, spoiler alert. Yeah, never actually watched it all the way through. (laughs) All right, they all drown. Um, Spoiler alert. Thanks, Barney. I actually don't give a shit. I mean, about hearing about it. Obviously, it's bad that they died. Well, they're fictional characters. They're not real. Oh, I thought that it was... No, I think it's based on a true story, dude. Oh, is it? Yeah. About George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg? Well, no. I mean, that would be a documentary then. They're playing characters based on real people, I think. Explain more. Wouldn't that just be boring? <laughs> it's boring already. I don't already. understand how movies work. 
I don't understand how those little people get in my TV. <laughs> I remember wondering about that when I was a kid. Remember the book and movie The Perfect Storm? The author of that book, Sebastian Younger, also wrote A Death in Belmont, which is the complicated and creepy and sad and scary story of a murder that took place not far from the home where he grew up. The death of a middle-aged woman in the Boston suburb in 1963. A black man was pretty quickly arrested for it, but Younger recalls his parents talking about the case, outraged that this man was probably being set up just because of his race. Especially since the murder happened right at the time the Boston Strangler was active, and the victim fit his profile, and the murder fit his MO, but there was also evidence against a man who was arrested. It wasn't an arrest based solely on racism, just mostly. So was he innocent or not? And in the end, was Albert DeSelva really the Boston Strangler? The other main thread of the story is the personal connection Younger's family had with DeSelva, which is chilling. Younger's life may have been very different if things had aligned just a little differently. There's the idea out there that we all have had contact with a murder at some point in our lives and probably never know it. Younger had to live with knowing it for decades. The book is thorough and well written, and the author's personal connection adds an intensity to the story. It traces the story of Roy Smith, the man who was arrested for the death in Belmont, of Albert DeSelvo, and of Younger's own family and how they intersect. It was really, really good. Love, Tracy. Well, thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Keep them coming. Keep them coming, Tracy. They're good. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, we, we definitely, definitely love Tracy. It's 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 not mm. just we're not just saying it like we fucking mean it. Oh yeah, that book is a death embellment by Sebastian Younger. The details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to be like Tracy and as awesome as cool as Tracy, <laughs> and you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions on how to contribute. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Cambo, the host of True Crime Island podcast and now YouTube channel. Do you get angry when you listen to true crime? Well, so do I. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair and tune in to True Crime Island and maintain the rage with me as I say what you're thinking. Search for True Crime Island on your favourite audio podcatcher and now with added video goodness on the True Crime Island YouTube channel. Boom fuckalunga. And now for the finale of the Cape Cod Serial Killer. 
For Tony's next version of the story, he said again that both Pat and Marianne were pregnant, but this time they needed to go to California for an abortion. In this version of the truth, they didn't organise to leave the car in Truro for him, but he just went there randomly and found it. Oh, and the keys happened to be under the front wheel. Then they flew to Montreal from Boston. Yeah, and a paisley dolphin ate my homework. A pregnant paisley dolphin that went to Ottawa with four pregnant friends to get five abortions. Come on. Yeah, that's... Come on, that's plausible. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Plausible, yes. Believable, no. When investigators checked with the airport, so were able to confirm that neither Marianne nor Pat had flown to Canada or anywhere for that matter. The police liked Tony Costa for these murders, and he was their prime suspect, but without finding Pat and Marianne's bodies, they were unable to charge him. They told him, if Pat and Marianne really are alive, tell them to contact us. Digging into Tony's history, they found another dark and dastardly event. In August 1967, high school student and friend of Tony's, Marsha Maori, had gone to Truro with him to see his marijuana plants. Hey, baby. Tony had a big crush on Martha. Well, you know, she was a teenager. She had long, dark hair. Yeah, and he had weed. And you know what else he had? He brought with him a bow and arrow. He was practising shooting at trees, possibly to impress her. Oh, yeah. When a guy makes a long, thin, flying, stabby thing stab into another thing, I'm like, let's get naked! Hey, baby! As they wandered along a narrow path through the overgrown terrain, Marsha ended up walking ahead of Tony. Everything was fine until she felt something hit her from behind. Tony had shot her in the back with an arrow. Real smooth, Tony. Real smooth. Luckily, she was wearing a heavy, rambunctious, fancy coat. It wasn't rambunctious or fancy. Luckily, she was wearing a heavy coat, so it didn't penetrate her back as much as it would have otherwise. Tony apologised and said it was an accident. Hey, baby, I'm sorry. Whoops. When Marsha went to the doctors to get the wound seen to, he told her it was only a quarter of an inch away from piercing her left lung. Marsha happened to be friends with Tony's long-suffering ex-wife, Avis. When asked about Tony, she told police something her friend Avis had told her. This is a quote from In His Garden by Leo Damore. She told me about how Tony used to do really perverted things to her when they were married. She almost died one time. She had taken some sort of medicine Tony used to put animals to sleep from his taxidermy kit. She took out some to knock herself out because Tony liked to make love to her when she was unconscious. She also used plastic bags to try and pass out. He used to tell her that's what he wanted. Yeah, she'd like put them over her head. We covered that in part one too. Marsha refused to show investigators where to find Tony's romantic marijuana garden. She and lots of teenagers in the area thought Tony had nothing to do with the missing girls and was being persecuted for being super awesome, being rad and using dope. After investigators pressured her parents, she reluctantly gave in and showed them. Tony's special garden was in a little clearing in Truro near the creepy as fuck cemetery, about a mile from where Pat's VW was seen parked. Marsha pointed out an overgrown track that wound through the trees. Further into the woods, down a slight slope, was a large open area. At the end of the clearing, they found Tony's garden. Police noted that this area hadn't been searched yet and they hoped looking around it would help them answer some questions about the missing young women. 
Police, park rangers and local and state troopers, as well as cadaver dogs, descended on the location. Well, they parachuted in or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cadaver dogs love parachuting. Oh, yeah. Dogs love getting thrown out of planes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're like, woo. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'll do that. (laughs) They volunteer. (laughs) So while the search was going on, on March 3rd, 1969, a telegram from New York addressed to Tony Costa arrived at his mother's house in Provincetown. It read, what happened? Stop. We waited as planned. Stop. Is everything all right? Stop. We'll meet you as scheduled in New York City. Stop. Call Chuck first. Stop. Love, Pat and Mary Ann. Tony's mother rushed the telegram to the police as proof that the young women were still alive. She told them, now maybe you'll believe my Tony. She was so sure he was innocent and the police were just harassing him. I wonder if that's what she thought when he was caught red-handed and arrested for trying to kidnap his 14-year-old neighbour. Probably. My Tony couldn't possibly do anything bad. He's good at maths, apparently, but, like, not when it comes to money, as we saw earlier. Yeah, you know, money works in numbers. That's kind of math. I know, Barney. That's the only kind of maths that I'm real good at. <laughs> counting, counting how little. Well, I don't have to count very high, do I? <laughs> no, you don't have to count very high. You hit about six. Not a lot of zeros there. Done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> After some investigating, it was proved that the telegram was actually sent from a New York number at a place that Tony often stayed. He did like to flit about the country on a whim. Yeah, he sent himself the telegram to try to make himself look less guilty. I love it, Tara, when arrogant killers think they can outsmart the cops and fail miserably. <laughs> Me- it's my favourite thing. <laughs> Me too. Now let's get back to the police search. After spending a few weeks in the freezing cold looking for signs of Pat and Mary Ann, the search party finally had some luck. On March 5th, they found Pat's suede bag with a peace sign on it. Inside was her ID, credit cards and makeup. Soon afterwards, they found Mary Ann's purse with her ID and makeup in it too. Next, an officer noticed a length of rope tied to a tree. It seemed to be the same kind that they found in Tony's room at the guest house, and it was also stained by what looked suspiciously like blood. Look, it could have been tomato sauce, but spoiler alert, it looked like blood because it Mm -hmm. was blood. Nearby bottle caps and an earring were found. Police started digging near the tree and it wasn't long before they found pill vials and drug paraphernalia. Bongs and Chichin Chong videos. You know it, baby. Digging further down, the police discovered a plastic bag. When they opened it to view its contents, they were appalled to see that it contained the severed head of Mary Ann Wysocki. The makeshift shallow grave also held other pieces of Mary Ann's body, but not all of her was there. Nearby, another shallow grave was unearthed. As police carefully dug down into it, a pungent odour permeated the air. Here, police discovered Pat Walsh's body, which had been cut in half. The grave also contained the rest of Mary Ann. Their bodies were well preserved from the cold, but still the odour coming from the grave was intense. After digging some more, the police realised this was because under Pat and Mary Ann's bodies was yet another body which was blackened by decay and badly deteriorated. It was later identified as the remains of 18-year-old Sydney Monzen. 
The investigators said this horrific jigsaw puzzle of lady parts was the worst thing they had ever seen. To quote Kurt Vonnegut's Life magazine article, whoever did it was no artist with a knife. He chopped up the women with what the police guessed was probably a brush hook or an axe. It couldn't have taken too long to do. So yeah, not a lot of artistry there. A 22 caliber pistol was found buried nearby. It was later identified as Tony Costa's gun. Three expended 22 caliber shells were unearthed near the dismembered bodies that were shown to be fired from Tony's gun. Tony, who had scampered off to Boston again, was arrested. He denied the murder charges and said he didn't want to say any more. He was sent to Bridgewater State Hospital for 35 days observation. According to the dubious book, Hunting Humans, an Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers by Michael Newton, Tony's first psychiatric exam resulted in the diagnosis of a schizoid personality. Three months later, a second psychiatrist characterised Tony as a modern-day Marquis de Sade and a sexually dangerous man capable of murder. Pat Walsh's cause of death turned out to be a gunshot wound in the neck, while Mary Ann Wasaki died from two gunshot wounds to the head. DA Edmund Dinnis stated to the press, The evidence indicates that the Walsh girl was attacked first. Her companion ran for her life, only to be caught, dragged back and killed. Bloodstains were found on the piece of rope and muddy pair of boots Tony Costa had left in the guest house. News of the discovery of three more dismembered bodies of young women on Cape Cod made national headlines. In fact, Marianne's mother Martha had learned of her daughter's death from neighbours calling to offer condolences after hearing about the discovery of her body on the radio. Fortunately, the police had informed Pat's family of their heartbreaking discovery before they learned it elsewhere. District Attorney Edmund Dinnis fanned the flames of the media attention and didn't let the truth stand in his way of doing so. He said at a press conference, The hearts of each girl had been removed from the bodies and were not in the graves, nor were they found. A razor-like device was found near the graves. Each body was cut into as many parts as there are joints. He also said there were teeth mark on the bodies. When a reporter asked if this was the work of a Cape Cod vampire, Dennis nodded in agreement. <laughs> like, come on, that's more like a hammer horror kind of deal there. He's a bit of a knob, this guy, yeah, isn't he? he wasn't really going with the facts. He was going with the sensationalism. The young women's hearts had not been removed, although some organs were missing from Susan Perry's body. No cutting device was found and the bodies had been cut into no more than eight parts each. Curious locals and tourists flocked to the Truro woods, hoping to rub a neck at the shallow graves. Yeah, some packed a picnic lunch, brought their kids and made a day of it, Tara, digging around hoping to find more bodies. Fun for the entire family. Indeed. Rumours of satanic worship also spread around town. Tony, well, Of course they yeah, did. Yeah, I know everything's a bit of course they did, isn't it? Tony Costa's trial for the murders of Pat Walsh, Marianne Rysocki, Sidney Monson and Susan Perry opened on May 6, 1970. In an effort to look more respectable, Tony shaved his moustache off for the trial. Yeah, it didn't work. You can shave the moustache off your face, Tony, but you'll never shave the moustache off your no, soul. No, it's there for good. A lot of the local teenagers were still adamant that Tony didn't commit the murders. They claimed he was being framed by the drug dealers he narked on to get his jail sentence for failure to pay child support lightened. Framed as a serial killer for narking on drug dealers. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty complicated bullshit theory, isn't it? 
Yeah, you'd think a Colombian necktie would make more yeah, sense. It would be faster too. Evidence was presented at the trial that from 1965 to 1970, Tony was off his chops on drugs, including amphetamines, barbiturates, LSD, methadrine, hashish, nembatol and marijuana. The bizarre nature of the killings was also offered as evidence of insanity. There were conflicting theories presented on whether Tony's drug use altered his mental capacity to an extent that meant he wasn't responsible for the murders. Four psychiatrists testified. Two of them diagnosed Tony as a borderline schizophrenic whose drug use had negatively altered his mental capacity. The other two stated that they didn't think Tony was suffering from anything besides a personality disorder and was culpable for the murders. Yeah, he knew it was wrong. Oh my God, he definitely did. Did he do it in front of a cop? No, he didn't. He went to great lengths to try and like hide his tracks. To cover it up. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, come on. Testimony of a pathologist went into gruesome details about the dismemberment of the young women's bodies. Pat Walsh's body had been cut in half at the abdomen and the body of Mary Ann Wysocki was cut into five pieces. Despite what Tony had told police, neither of them were pregnant at the time of their murders. After death, both had been sexually assaulted. Ugh, which ties in with Tony's kink for sex with unresponsive yeah. girls. The skin of Pat and Mary Ann's torsos had been peeled off their chests like they were wearing a sweater made of skin tied about their shoulders. Prosecutor Armand Fernandez told Born to Kill, when they're put on a white slab in the mortuary and their bodies are cleaned and you look at their faces, you can see the horror in their faces. You can see the scream as they're caught just before death and you don't forget things like that. Despite his legal counsel strongly advising him not to do so, Tony insisted on taking the stand. Oh, yeah. These arrogant assholes always do. do. He seemed to be under the impression that he could charm the jury into believing he was innocent. While on the stand, lapping up the attention, Tony gave a rather rational lecture on the evil of drugs, which only served to prove he was in fact sane enough to know what he was doing. Yeah, he totally torpedoed his own insanity defence with that. Suck it, Tony. (laughs) Journalist Francis Broadhurst told Born to Kill that although Tony's defence team didn't want the photos of the young women's dismembered bodies shown in court, he was eager to look at the photographs and see his own handiwork. It was part of the coldness and soullessness of this man that he could revel in reliving the experience. Tony Costa was found guilty of all four murders. On May 29th, the judge sentenced Tony to spend the rest of his life at Walpole Prison. Four years later, Tony Costa hanged himself in his cell. He was 29 years old. He is said to be buried in an unmarked grave. Longtime Truro resident Elizabeth Groom told the Cape Cod Times Tony's death did nothing to quieten down the conspiracy theory, saying everyone still says he had a little help. That's like Ivan Milat, but unlike Ivan Milat, in our research we didn't find any information that even pointed to any other suspects who might have helped him. Yeah, none of our research bared that out, did no. it? it? It was pretty obvious he was on his own. Yeah. Here's something that's a bit mm. weird. Halloween was not the same after 1969. The road leading to Tony's garden became a fun place for teenagers to go to creep themselves out. Elizabeth Groom went on to say the kids would play Halloween pranks and say, you've got to watch out for Tony Chop Chop, he may be around a tree. 
Tony never confessed to the murders of any of the young women. While in prison, he wrote what he described as a factual novel called Resurrection that proclaimed his innocence and rubbed salt into the wounds of the murdered women's loved ones. According to what he wrote in Resurrection, Tony's friend Carl killed all the women. He claimed Carl was a pseudonym for a friend of his, but we reckon this friend was imaginary and the authorities didn't take it seriously either. So apparently Tony and Carl were out in the Truro woods with Pat and Mary Ann wandering around off their tits on LSD when Carl shot them for no reason. As if this wasn't bad enough, Tony also claimed Pat's last words were that she loved him. As if she'd choose Tony the teenager fucker over her long-term boyfriend Bob, who'd even gotten a tattoo for her. Come on! I know, right? It's infuriating. Here's an excerpt from Tony's book. I crawled over to the clump, hoping I was hallucinating. It was Pat's body. Barely conscious, she lay on her side, her right arm extended above her head. I prodded her gently. Pat! I called fearfully. She tried to move. Tony, please hold me, came her soft, death-like whisper. I'm so cold. I love you. (sighs) My ears are so full of bullshit after hearing that. I'm going to have to use a fire hose to clean them out. I feel like it got in my mouth, you know. Tony also claimed in his book that Susan Perry and Sidney Monson died of drug overdoses, one in the woods and the other in Carl's apartment. Then Carl dismembered their bodies and buried them in the woods for reasons. Although only convicted of four murders, it's believed Tony may have murdered several other girls. In June 1966, he brought home two young hippie chicks, Bonnie Williams and Diane Federoff, and said that he'd be driving them to Pennsylvania, then going on alone to California. Later, Tony told police he actually drove the girls to Haywood, California, but they were never seen again. Bonnie and Diane are now believed to be his first known victims. In early 1968, Tony moved to San Francisco for a while. Here he got himself a girlfriend named Barbara Spaulding. Barbara left her child with relatives and vanished on the same day that Tony left town. Although police initially wrote off Christine Gallant's drug overdose death in New York as a suicide, they reopened her case after Tony was charged with murder. But unfortunately, nothing was proven. So yeah, rot in your unmarked grave, Tony. Whoa. What a story, and what a despicable man. Ugh, ugh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Not a fan at all. Yeah, what did, what did you call it? A, a tangled web of horse That's shit? it. That's what I said. <laughs> like your grandma's ranch. That's what I said. Just, <laughs> well, just like that. I have but one question. Yeah? What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. All right. I think you'll like this one. A diabolical serial home invader who broke into houses, fucked up people's property and ate cat food in a Tasmanian town has finally been caught. Resident Bev McGee first fell victim to the brazen thief's insistence at making themselves at home in her house about a year ago when they made their way into the back entrance of her place and had themselves a little nap on her settee. 
Bev told the ABC, Oh, we got up the next morning and there's cushions and rugs strewn everywhere and filthy, dirty marks on the cushions and, and hair everywhere. I thought, what on earth has been here? Muddy footprints left at the scene gave Bev a clue as to who she was dealing with. Although Bev's property was protected by large iron gates, it didn't deter the intruder at all. She said, oh, he then started to come in our front gate. He dug where it was soft and just dug under the gate and crawled through under it. She said he pulled plants out of her garden and made himself a cosy little place to sleep under a large rock. While gas bagging to the neighbours, Bev found out that she wasn't the only one who had this problem. He'd been going in all over town and he'd also walked over some semi-dry paint at a nearby property, leaving his big footprints there too. So are you starting to wonder if I'm talking about a person right now, Barney? I'm hoping you're talking about a cigar-smoking orangutan who rides a unicycle. <laughs> yeah, nah, I'm talking about a wombat. Bev named him Mr. Bat, and he makes Goldie looks look bloody polite in comparison. For our overseas listeners, wombats are short, chubby, furry little fuckers, much like Tara, <laughs> who have long claws and usually live in the bush. Did you know that when wombats poo, it comes out in little cubes? Yes, I did know that. It's actually one of my top five favourite facts. It's so they don't roll down hills. I don't understand how their poo rolling down a hill would be a problem. And you were unable to explain it's it to important, me It's important, all right? Give it another shot. It's important. It's important that poo doesn't roll down Why? hills. Why? I'd look it up. <laughs> you look it up and then you get back to me, okay? I don't know why. I know is. you don't know. We've been over this, Barney. You still don't know, do you? Didn't spend our lunch break no, looking it know. up, did you? <laughs> no, I did not. I spent my lunch break eating lunch. Oh, like a sucker and a chump. <laughs> yeah. Northern Midlands councillor Matthew Brooks told ABC Radio, Oh, my wife didn't believe me when I said we might have a rogue wombat running around the neighbourhood. You get some weird and wonderful problems to solve when you're on the council. Maddie went on to deliver this quote, which my immature ass finds hilarious. He said, Oh, it's been going through people's cat and dog flaps. Residents have said they've been asleep and have heard rustling noises and they've been greeted by a wombat coming up their passage. <laughs> <laughs> if you find a wombat coming up your passage, that means six more months it of summer. Does, it does. It does mean that in Australia. Now, Maddie noted that the wombat was living in council pipes during the day and visiting residents' yards at night. Matty's yard was also a favourite place for Mr Bat. He said, oh, it didn't bother me at all. We just didn't want him to get run over. That was the main concern of all the residents at Longford. With the safety of Mr Bat in jeopardy, Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service caught his chunky little butt and sent him off to live in picturesque Cradle Mountain. Let's just... Oh, oh I know, don't you think? Let's just hope Mr Bat is happy there. Digging holes, shitting out cubes and trying to make sweet wombatty love to all of the lady wombats. Oh, that'd be nice. Well, that was a good ending. Yeah. I like that one. That's my favourite. Do another one. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid I can't just, like, summon them. Like, I, I don't have another one right now, but I'll give you another one next week, okay? All right. This brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Bowles Smecker from the United Kingdom. 
Silvo from Australia. We'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team. Now, Tara, we love our patrons, and in an attempt to show them how much we do, we have been holding monthly giveaways. This month, we have a special prize. Thanks to Studio, we're giving away some Femme Studio wireless earbuds. Woo! Those Scandinavian geniuses at Studio have done it again. With its wireless design and minimalistic charging case, Femme is the perfect match for any podcasting adventure. They are splash, rain, sweat, tear, beer, tomato sauce. Tabasco, <laughs> proof, and they hold a total of 20 hours playtime. Six hours in a single charge, Amazing. Tara. Femme also introduces a four-microphone system and new touch controls for an enhanced sound quality experience. And it features the latest Bluetooth 5.0 technology compatible with iOS and Android and up to 10 metres of range. Ten! Perfect for listening to murdery stories. Murdery stories, murdery stories, murdery stories, murdery stories. For bloody murder listeners, studio... Oh, for Christ's sake, Barney, turn that effect off. Can't have it on everything. Sorry. Thank you. For bloody murder listeners, studio are offering free worldwide shipping and 15% off with the code bloodymurder15 at checkout. Visit studio.com. For a chance to win a pair of the fabulous Studio Femme wireless earbuds, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level above $5. And we'll be drawing that in the next few days. So, yeah, if you want to win those, become a, become a patron. And then you'll go into the draw. Unfortunately, we can't give them to all our patrons. Or we would. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. So thanks to... Victoria Norris. Sue Meering Moreau. Mike Sales. And Anne Burlingham. Thank you so much, everyone. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice. There's a PayPal donate button there too. Now, we'd just like to take a moment to offer our deepest condolences to the loved ones of the four police officers who lost their lives on duty a few days ago when what should have been a routine traffic stop in Melbourne turned deadly. We still don't know why the driver of the truck veered into the hazard lane and mowed them down, but we do know Senior Constable Kevin King, Leading Senior Constable Lynette Taylor, Constable Joss Presney and Constable Glenn Humphreys will be sorely missed. Indeed. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or on our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe because it really helps. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our brilliant Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back really soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey. Well, because you had kids and you, like, have to homeschool them and shit. Oh, yeah, it's all Google Classrooms. They have, like, like um, graphs of things they have to do and I just go through it. Okay. Occasionally I have to. I've caught them goofing off on, on um, just watching YouTube videos. When they should be studying. Do you, do you give them what yeah. for? Do you, go, do you, do you give do. them the pain? I'll... Do you send them to the principal's office? No, I just walk in, I clap my hands, I say, look alive. I don't pay you to gold brick. <laughs> Is and that I say, what you, do? you don't pay us at all. And... What's a gold brick? And I say, I don't know. 
<laughs> Get back to work. Look alive. So you just go in there, shock them and confuse them. Yeah, that's pretty motivating, I'm sure. I've just been sitting here and like doing lots of work and like having to talk to lots of strangers on the phone constantly, constantly talking to strangers on the phone. You know, I'm almost allergic to making phone calls. So it's, it's kind of interesting <laughs> what I'll do for money. I should have just become a cam girl when I had the chance. <laughs> but no. Yeah, me too. You should though. Yeah, there's not a lot of demand for tubby 50 year old hairy men. Have you actually looked into it? Because I think there might be. Yeah, really? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I'm paying for this now, aren't I? Woo! I'll give you 20 bucks to stick that carrot up your nose. <laughs> you dance into the Skype music. <laughs> I always end up with that stuck in my head the whole time. <laughs> oh, yes. Break it down. Yes, making boxes, eh? Yeah, yeah. Hey, count the stars. Oh, Kelly, wash my ass. Oh, Kelly, wash my ass. <laughs> my ass is a bit, bit. My ass is a bit stinky. I need Kelly. Actually, remember she told me that she wanted me to communicate exclusively through to her through the podcast. So, um, Kelly, uh, wash Barney's wash ass. Wash my ass. <laughs> That's right. I don't know what to say after that. Should have been gone. <laughs> you know, I had to listen to that the other day because of you doing that. Oh, really? It's fantastic. Yay. Except, like, then I ended up watching some of his video clips, and they're they're a little... He doesn't seem to have a lot of rhythm in the video clip. The police like Tony Costa. No, they do For these murders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when punctuation goes wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure they didn't actually like him. Police were thrilled as this area hadn't been searched yet and they hoped that looking around it would help them answer some questions about the missing young women. I don't know about that being thrilled. I mean, I, I, I think being thrilled is when you win a car or something. Yeah, maybe that's the wrong choice of words. They were... Well, what other word could I use? Encouraged. Happy? Uh, just leave it as thrilled. Well, I can't now, can I? <laughs> <laughs> Police noted that this area hadn't been searched yet. Are you happy now? No. No, you don't look very happy. You look smelly. Are you smelly now? I'm not. I showered yesterday, thank you. Oh, yesterday. Living memory, huh? Within memory. (laughs) Well, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. You like that word permeated? Yes. Do you not? Oh, it's all right. Permeated. Come on, it takes your mouth on a journey. Oh, uh, yeah, we, uh, if you were here, I'd do something that permeated the air for you. Sorry? Oh, God, no, no. You permeated the air for many years. I don't... It's like the best thing about ISO life is no longer having to deal with how frequently and stinkily you permeate the air with your barniness. I'll send you a jar. You were supposed to post me a jar of farts in the mail and I was going to share it with my dog, Pop, because she actually likes farts. Oh, no. Oh, what if it broke in the postman's bag and the postman died? It'll be quite a... <laughs> like when I give you the rude finger because you ask me if I'm itchy. Yeah. You just... Well, are you? Well, I'm a li- well, now that you mention it, my arm's a bit itchy, but I think that I wasn't yeah, before it came up. The investigators said this horrific jigsaw puzzle of lady parts was the worst thing they had ever seen. 
They obviously hadn't seen that live-action Cats movie. <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah, they haven't seen the butthole version of it, the butt cut. I've heard that's the best cut. I hear it's real. It's not a rumour. It's real. Oh, right. Not the... Okay, I'm just going to accept that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Fast and loose. Much like yourself, Barney. <laughs> the young women... <laughs> That's right, man. Hey, baby, I'm fast and loose. <laughs> that's that's our sexy Barney's sexual style. And when I say loose, I mean the bowels are loose. Oh, nice. <laughs> wow. It's fast, but at least it's loose. Can you write my dating profile? Oh, uh, yeah. Please? Oh, yes. Yes, I can. I can and I will. I'm just going to make you one. I'll have to pay for it myself, but I'm just going to make you one and use pictures that I've already got and just make it say the most appalling, ridiculous things. But I'll give them your real phone number. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. The young woman's... By the way, my girlfriend will be thrilled if you do this. I, I think she'll think it's hilarious. Two of them diagnosed Tony as a borderline schizophrenic borderline... Grrr. Grrr. <laughs> a borderline. You just keep on pushing my love over the borderline. Grrr. <laughs> Are you just randomly giving me the rude finger while I'm reading? Thank you. <laughs> I like how proud of yourself you looked when you, when you nodded then. You're like, yeah, I am. That's exactly what I'm doing. Thanks for noticing. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Here's, another ex- here's an excerpt from Tony's book. Here's an excerpt. Here's an expert. expert. Here's a... Well, <laughs> <laughs> My brain's just shutting down on okay, me. Okay, excerpt. I'm not mad, Barney. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> you sound like a fucking wanker. Come on, it can't be that hard. Uh, you know, you know, I've heard that from a lot of people. It, that that doesn't hurt me anymore. What? I'm I'm not so mad at you. I'm disappointed. <laughs> I've heard that from so many people in my life. Do that in my father's voice. No, no, say something nice in my father's no, voice. No, no, no. I think we should stop right there. You got to pay me like I'm actually a psychologist if you treat me like one. And they kept lying that it wasn't on. And they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.